Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah. This is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today, we're talking with Samantha Gunn, who is an outdoor educator in Saskatoon, working at the Brightwater Science, Environmental and Indigenous Learning Centre, and is leading the Climate Educators Network here in Saskatchewan. We caught up with Sam, who joined us from their acreage to talk about a connecting to land, solo time and fundamental shifts in educational programming. Samantha Gunn, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, you currently work at a place called Brightwater. Can you tell us about what Brightwater is and uh, a bit about your journey to be an educator there? Yeah, you bet. Um, I just started working at Brightwater four years ago, and there's a, a legacy that dates back to the 90s when Brightwater really got up and running. And so, um, you know, the gist of it is that it's... Um, it, it's a land-based outdoor learning center and it's evolved over time. At the heart of it has always been about connecting students in the public school division to nature um, through curricular learning. And so Saskatoon Public Schools um, owns and operates the facility um, and it's, it works in different ways. So we have a partnership with a summer camp um, that's next door, the Salvation Army Camp. And so sometimes students are coming to learn um, through, you know, extended overnight experiences. Uh, sometimes they're coming to learn, you know, for day trips or, or, you know, even like a half a day or an hour at a time. But just that idea that we can get out on the land um, to do our curricular learning. Um, and so, you know, over the years, different people have taken it in different directions, um, but the 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 foundation of it um, came from folks uh, like Louise Jones, uh, Max Abraham, Kim Archibald, and Marsha Klein. And so, I just I always want to make sure that that the folks that had the vision get the credit because I'm just kind of a baby teacher coming into it, trying to do my <laughs> best. <laughs> yeah. Sam, did you have any experiences growing up that led you to want to be an outdoor educator? Yeah, for sure. Like we, um, I grew up in Saskatoon in Montgomery, um, which is a neighborhood that's sort of in the southwest corner of the city with big trees and lots of park space. And so we grew up outside. That's just how we played and learned. And my family uh, during the summers, like my mom was a stay at home mom and then she was a preschool teacher. And so we had our summers together. And um, we would always just travel and go camping. We didn't have a lake, so we would just get around, you know, all around Saskatchewan to different sites. And um, I don't think I realized how lucky I was to have a childhood like that not until, you know, now that I'm a parent and I see how challenging it is to pack everybody up and like, you know, get out camping just once. But but we would get out to different places all the time. And so, you know, it just I, I think being in the outdoors, being around other living beings near the soil, near the water and the fresh air is just such a place of, of comfort and happiness. And, and, you know, I had such a happy childhood that all of those things are kind of associated. 
And um, so then moving that into my career, when I think about, you know, how do I support students in like holistic, healthy, happy ways of learning and being, um, it feels really natural that that the outdoors would be a context for that. Mm -hmm. And you haven't always been with uh, Brightwater. So what were you doing before that? Uh, yeah, I've had just a fairy tale career. Um, I bet you always describe <laughs> you as like a rock star who like doesn't stay with a band for very long. Like you just move on. <laughs> like once you've made it successful, you move on to something. Oh man, no! I feel like just this the luckiest person in the world who's sort of stumbling through with the support of the most amazing mentors. Like I, so I I started. Um, I did my ed degree at the U of R, and they had an outdoor ed minor that you could do so if you got your your um, major in secondary phys ed you could you could get a minor in outdoor ed so I went and did that and and um, there was a professor there at the time Garth Pickard who he was just an absolute powerhouse and amazing human being and and he helped set me up with an internship at the outdoor school program in Saskatoon so it's a grade 11 program and I got to teach uh, phys ed and senior science and English geography and so I just got to really like try all of these different um, teaching areas and also to do it all in the outdoors. And, um, you know, I, I was working with incredible teachers, Kim Archibald and, and Terry Clark, and, and they helped me out in my internship. And then I got hired in my first year in that job. And it was just lucky timing, you know, like the job just opened up when I happened to be looking for a job. So I did that for around a decade. <laughs> they let me stay that long through two <laughs> maternity leaves and, and, you know, moving schools a few times, sticking with that program. Um, and then right as I was ready for kind of a transition, um, this Brightwater job opened up. And so I got to bounce into that. So, you know, I've been working in outdoor ed my entire career, um, which I still can't believe. I still have to pinch myself. <laughs> Well, you're lucky, but you also are skilled to get at those places too. They're not, those positions aren't for, for the light of heart at times. So. Oh, it's very kind. <laughs> what, what do you notice when students come to the Brightwater facility? I know you mentioned they come for various lengths of time. And that's something that I think about a lot of what is like, what's the optimum? How do we optimize this for an outdoor experience? And what, what are we gaining from different lengths of experiences and different experiences in different places? But can you talk a bit about some of your programming or the impact that it might have on students and their connection to land and place and each other? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Uh, and and I think about it all the time because part of my job is is sort of determining the best way to utilize the site. And so, you know, is that by prioritizing these long overnight experiences and and holding space for that or is it by trying to get as many different classes as we can in in short increments and I think what I've learned is that um you know just like anything we do as teachers in the classroom you have to meet the students where they're at and each student is going to benefit from a different experience so like we do have students who I think in a couple nights would be very uncomfortable for them. You know, the, the, the idea of being maybe away from their technology or out in the outdoors for that long um, is not pleasant or beneficial and there needs to be some scaffolding. Um, on the other hand, we do notice that when students are able to stay longer, the layers that we can kind of peel back and, and get to in terms of holistic learning 
go much deeper. So, you know, we, we can build in opportunities for quiet reflection on the landscape. We can build in opportunities um, for intentional community building, um, you know, working on different kinds of skills, cross-curricular learning. So the richness of that experience um, just kind of increases with the time that you're on the land. But that being said, I, I do, I think it's really important too, to, to acknowledge that there are barriers, especially when you're working, you know, in a large school system or a large school, you know, transportation can be difficult if you're not in a school that's near a green space. Um, cost can be a barrier. I mean, like at Brightwater, we're so fortunate that it's all it's all funded or subsidized through the public school division or through other grants. Um, but but just um, I'm always cautious of, of sort of comparing the, the long term time in nature and the short term and making it sound like those short term times aren't valuable because they are. Mm. And so, you know, I'm giving you a long answer here, but I think what we see in those short experiences in students, often we see, you know, teachers will talk about how students um, you know, they really needed that time to, um, you know, slow down and relax or have a long time to observe or think or, um, you know, have some space to wander or, you know, allow their eyes to just kind of scan the landscape and and chill out. And so, you know, those kind of comments make me realize um, how important those little breaks um, in nature can be as well. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. don't always, I think it can spark them wanting to be in nature for longer too. those short stints. Sometimes yeah. if you throw them over for a longer time, they have a tough go. I've, I've come and worked with you guys for the last three years now. And Sam, you've always led fire building and things like that. And I, I remember getting so caught up in your lesson. I just love, I talk about this with other teachers too. It's just so great to hear someone knowledgeable about science and how you can weave it into lessons like that but yeah i remember i was out there with my class a couple times but one of the years we were building fires for i don't know about an hour or something like that and i got totally immersed in it and i forgot i didn't even notice the bus had come and we were like an hour late <laughs> getting back but it was me it's on me but i got so immersed in the lesson I'm like yeah this is fantastic um but that's just kind of like i can talk to- like and i talk to my students it's the same thing they they just love that those uh, those interactions with with nature like that mm-hmm. oh that's fantastic i'm so glad you had a good experience <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sometimes i think we hear that there's not time for outdoor education or there's curricular ob- objectives or outcomes that, that need to be met and you mentioned making your programming match with the curriculum can you talk a little bit more about that and why that like, why you do that and how you do that they might provide some inspiration or guidance for teachers who are wanting striving towards that yeah for sure and you know like the programming that happens at brightwater um so much of it was in place when i came there and so you know it was developed over time through various perspectives through changing curricula too so um you know my personal philosophy is that you you can meet any outcome in the outdoors <laughs> and and i'm i really mean that and and i go back to this old idea and and it is it is a bit dated in some ways but but some of those like foundational outdoor ed texts from the 60s that talk about learning in about and for the outdoors um there's very good reason to just take learning outside even if you're not studying something in the outdoors 
you know, like, like being in the fresh air, being in the sunshine, having soft focus to like restore your attention to your schoolwork. Like, why wouldn't you take a whiteboard outside and do your math? You know, I think that's a really basic way of thinking about like outdoor ed is just moving to the outside, but I don't think we should dismiss it either. I think, mm -hmm. I think, especially in high school settings where maybe you have really like 45 minutes of learning time once you kind of get the transitions taken care of why wouldn't you take a novel and go read it under a tree you know on on lots of days so there's that idea of just moving learning into the outdoors and then you know i've done so much work in the last few years through Brightwater and Saskatoon Public and working on some projects with me wasson just aligning curricula and i would say you know i found that k-12 Gosh, it's just a rough estimate, but but the content in like 70% of our curricular outcomes makes reference to the land or to, you know, the water or the air or specifically to the environment or sustainability. So that that content connection in lots of our curricula is is really there anyways. And so, you know, I think when we have that opportunity to take the things that kids are learning about and make them concrete and provide context by going out into the community, um, you know, there's so much value to that. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's another, you know, it taps into another sort of style of learning where something might be concrete and right in front of me. And maybe I can see and touch and smell it and bring my senses into it, you know, or maybe I get to go, for a walk and meet a community member who understands this issue that we're talking about in social studies and that relational learning is what I really need, you know? Um, so there's like the content, but then there's also the modes of learning that can really blow things up for kids. But then there's also this idea that, that learning is, it's not just about ticking that outcome box you know, on the report card and saying, yeah, we're meeting this outcome, but that we have the potential to be learning in our communities. And, and, you know, I, I know you do that a lot through off the grid, Mike, but just, you know, recognizing that the things we're learning about and the things that we need to learn about because our curriculum states that we need to are, are pressing matters and, and students can be part of the, the solutions. And, and, you know, that's, and then that leads into their mental health too. You know, we live in a really challenging world. And so to take care of the whole child that we're working with, to allow them to engage in, in finding solutions through curricular learning um, just makes so much sense. So to me, you know, that sometimes it feels like you need to sell this to maybe parents sometimes or administrators that, no, you know, we're not just playing outside. We are doing curricular learning. It's so far beyond that. Like this is the best way to do most of our curricular learning. That was an excellent so, answer. Yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> it was so passionate and like so much depth and so many things you could dive into. Like kind of going into that, how, how do you integrate diverse ways of knowing into your programming there? So like in terms of diverse ways of knowing, like we use that phrase a lot when we're talking about indigenous ways of knowing or ways of being or ways of doing. And, and I know at Brightwater in particular in the last year, we, we sort of looked at, um, you know, the ways that we were and weren't authentically including um, indigenous colleagues, indigenous content, ways of being, um, and so, you know, with the support of, of, 
you know, these incredible, knowledgeable colleagues um, from the First Nations Inuit Métis Unit um, who spend a lot of time at Brightwater facilitating land-based learning. Um, we sort of took a step back from um, everything, from our, our programming, our facilities. We kind of laid it out all on the table and just said, you know, like, what do we need to do here um, to make sure that, that as we move forward and as we, you know, kind of envision the future of Brightwater, that we are authentically um, not just including, but but we're starting from a place of Indigenous knowledge. Mm. And, you know, that process for me was really eye-opening because it part of what it did was, was to reveal how much of, of our daily functions are grounded in Western science. Um, and not not that that's a bad thing, but to make that really visible and just to to see how much of what we're doing um, values and upholds and honors Western knowledge and, and conservation, too. Um, and and how by centering that you you're making the choice to not center indigenous ways of knowing or other ways of knowing. And so so by by kind of flipping that script and saying, OK, we're going to start somewhere else and see where it leads us and see that it leads us to a different place. Um, you know, that was valuable learning. So long story long, um, we, we came <laughs> out with with this vision and and, you know, with all credit to um, the folks that were included. And, and I, you know, I always I always want to make sure I give credit to the people who are doing the work in the thinking. There is a team of about 11 people um, that brought this together. You know, the idea that we need to center history, language, culture and ceremony in everything that we do. And so, you know, when we're making decisions about not just about the programming that we're offering, but like, you know, what do we put money into in our in terms of our facilities budget at Brightwater? Um, you know, if if we look at ceremony and the land and language and culture, we make a different decision than we did in the past. Right. So, yeah, we're on a I'm on a journey and I'm and I've got colleagues that are on the journey with me. And um, so I, I would love to answer that question again next year and see where we're at. It's neat you say all that because I always find when I'm thinking of um, trying to include more Indigenous content or diverse ways of knowing into my lessons, I always initially think of it like, what can I add? But I don't actually take a step back enough in what I am doing already and being like, what do I have to change and sometimes drastically change about what I'm doing? And I'm so rarely open to doing that in some circumstances that I, that's, I think that's where my diverse way of teaching flops sometimes but it's what so you as a whole program stepping back like that and even like restructuring your building that is like that is that is i think an awesome first step or not even first step that's a great step uh, that's like <laughs> leading to strong programming i think yeah so what i mean the first sort of concrete thing that came out of that is um that we set aside the whole month of September and we're piloting a culture camp. And so um, we've got uh, Elder Tim Mishapi and Kathy Wapipa who are coming to help us facilitate culture camp. So that's, it, it sounds like a small shift for us. That's a big shift. Like September is the busy time when people want to book the cabins and do their welcome back camp and, um, and to have Tim and Kathy step forward and, and say that they'd be a part of this and help us facilitate, you know, 
it's, it's kind of amazing that we're going to be able to spend this whole month together, just trying something new. And so, you know, we're, we have, we have lots of, um, you know, materials and programming that we can give to teachers. That's like, here's what our typical two or three day camp is, and we can personalize it. And, you know, that's all going out the window for this September. We're, we're starting with a new template, with a new sort of vision, a new way of communicating with the teachers about what they're going to be doing. And um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to see how these culture camps um, start and then what we learn from them and how they're going to evolve. Excellent. Yeah. Sam, uh, one of the many positions you hold is also as a consultant for outdoor education. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Climate Educators Network that you've worked to start? Yeah, for sure. I um, I never thought in my career that we would have a, a, a space for climate change educators, um, you know, in, in as a professional learning community. Um, I think coming up as a teacher, I always felt that I was making a choice to, to do something that might be controversial. If I was talking about explicitly about climate change and about the reality that we've known for a long time is coming because of, of, you know, our relationship with the earth and, and resources. And, um, and so, you know, Again, it's something I can't take credit for. Like um, Marcia McKenzie was part of of sort of approaching the school division. She works for the Sustainability Education Policy Network um, and just saying, you know, students around the world are striking. Um, They're trying to get the attention of adults in their lives to do something about the climate crisis. And, you know, what is Saskatoon Public going to do? And, you know, with her guidance and, uh, you know, she she really stepped up and put the time in to um, establish this memorandum of understanding with our school division that we would partner with SEPIN and figure out what are the ways that we can move forward on climate change education. And so her first suggestion was that we needed this climate change educators network for people to start talking. And so, you know, the timing was unfortunate. We launched it in January of 2020 and and had big plans for March, um, like everybody did. Um, and so then through COVID, you know, we just I was making efforts to just keep people connected and bring people together. And so, you know, from there, I think the things that have blossomed out of that are lots of digital resource sharing. Um, and and the thing that I'm excited about that makes me feel really hopeful is is I've just noticed that that reluctance to talk about climate change in school, in the classroom seems to have melted away a little bit. We're not talking anymore about being afraid to bring it up. We're talking about what's the best way to do this or what's the next thing or how can we make this bigger or how can we collaborate with facilities? And so, yeah, through that work, you know, there's been, you know, the the Nature Talks student voice um, showcase, which again, you know, it was a challenge because we, because of the pandemic, trying to get people together for an event. But, but you know, we, some students did some amazing work for that. Um, you know, we've got partnerships with the Saskatchewan Environmental Society. And just this summer, um, one of our teachers did, wrote a manual basically for, um, projects that students can do in Saskatoon public to reduce carbon emissions, to reduce water usage, to reduce waste. So, 
you know, all these little sort of passion projects are just kind of flying. And it's really cool that um, there's a space for teachers to come together. Sasko Doors has a climate change education position statement. How do you think that Sasko Doors could support educators in furthering the climate discussion around the whole province? I think, you know, in my limited experience, you know, in the past couple of years, just having really open discussions about what teachers need, um, there, there is a need for resources and support, and particularly um, for kindergarten to grade three teachers who are interested in, in taking up climate change in their classroom. Because um, one of the things I remember as a student learning about climate change um, in my science class, and it was far away. Like they were throwing out years like 2030, 2050. And it was this like, oh yeah, like that's scary, but we'll figure it out. And I, it's, ju it's just not the case anymore. You know, we, the, the time frame is shorter. And so talking about climate change in classrooms now is more visceral and present. And um, I think what I'm hearing from, especially from the, the elementary teachers is, is just a recognition that this is something that is going to emotionally impact students and wanting to make sure that we understand when we raise awareness of climate change, this is not a hypothetical. And so for those little guys, for the older guys too, though, you know, how do we do it in a way that's hopeful? How do we do it in a way that is, um, you know, grounded in action and agency and um, that just, again, supports the well-being of students and communities? And so, you know, I would say anything, any, anything you could do to point teachers in that direction of, you know, hopeful, concrete action and well-being um, is, is going to be appreciated. I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I'm writing, like, oh, yeah. that was good. I should yeah. do that. <laughs> I remember when I was first starting teaching about climate change, I get like wrapped up in a lesson. We'd watch like some depressing thing. And then like the bell goes I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> no, we're not all doomed. You know, like, wait till tomorrow. <laughs> I really had to go away from that. Really like, okay, this is all I'm going through today. And then it's something positive. And yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's not just climate change. Like, I think we're starting to make space in our classrooms to talk about the realities in our world, mm -hmm. like, you know, racism and homophobia and, you know, and, and kids are, are so, have so much more access, I think, to news than we did. And so, you know, when something happens in our societies, it's not just climate change in the science classroom. Their awareness of really troubling, complex issues is probably also being raised in the social studies classroom as well. And and again, like it's not that we should not talk about it or not address it, but just, yeah, even being aware of those bells like mm -hmm. that we want to make sure we kind of get through that cycle in one class where we're leaving feeling, you know, in a place of hope or action or agency. Yeah. Do you have examples of resources that you would recommend to educators that are hopeful and concrete? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, I am part of another organization um, you know, with someone else that you interviewed recently, Elizabeth Bacole, called One School, One Farm. And I think that both of you are maybe involved in that as well. Um, but, you know, the idea is that we're working with 
uh, classrooms in Saskatchewan and land stewards. Um, so, you know, maybe farmers or, or landowners um, or reserves that are interested in increasing biodiversity and sequestering carbon by planting, you know, biodiverse pollinator strips and eco buffers. And so if you, I lost you in that rambling, basically, you know, we're partnering classrooms with people who have land and planting things. Um, but through that, providing support um, in the form of science education, um, ecological education, helping people get access to trees um, and tools, helping with the planning of, you know, the excursion. Um, and so, you know, I would I would just highly recommend that any teachers that are interested in teaching about climate change, if you're already doing it and you need that hopeful action piece um, to reach out to One School, One Farm and see if you could um, get involved. Because, um, you know, we've, we've had a couple pilot schools and the planting days have just been so joyful and educational and hopeful and, you know, everything that we wanted. Powering to youth, for sure. I think they feel mm. pretty great after it. Mm -hmm. Sam, we'd be remiss not to talk more about your experience as an outdoor educator uh, with with um, with Outdoor School, which is a program for grade 11 students. Um, when we were going through our note shows and uh, where we um, we listened to our viewers, what they recommend and who they recommend for the podcast, your name came up a few times. And one of them said we have to make you talk about solos. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about solos? Sure. Yeah. Now I'm really curious who said that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go back and check. No, it's good. Um, yeah, I love, I love solo time. Um, so my first solo time was when I was a student in grade 11 in outdoor school. And we um, basically were told to uh, take our journals and go sit down by the river for you know, a half an hour, 45 minutes and do some writing and reflecting and just kind of be still. And then throughout the semester, we visited different places, grasslands, and we did a canoe trip on the Churchill. And every time we did a trip, we would just take time to be in that space um, by ourselves, quietly, um, with time to reflect. And by the end of the semester, we built up to a full day. So we were out for 12 hours um, and grade 11. So we're about 16 years old. Um, and the distance between us grew too. You know, the first time we were maybe a few steps away and by that 12 hour solo, we were, um, some of us were on our own island. We had canoed to, um, to, to spend that 12 hours. And, and, you know, what I learned from that as a student and what I valued was that we were going through these intense experiences. And I, I think lots of outdoor learning is intense because you're, you're asking people to engage in a really in deep and sort of layered way. You can't just bring your brain <laughs> to school. You, you have to show up physically. Um, you know, the way that you're interacting when you're outside, it, it requires you to be with people. Like you can't have your face in your phone the whole time. And so that emotional interaction and, and that, you know, on, especially on the longer trips, that sort of spiritual journey that you're on, it just requires your whole self to be engaged a lot of the time and to have time to be on your own and, and reflect on that experience and integrate that information in a meaningful way. You know, it was so so valuable and I see it more you know we still offer solo times at Brightwater often you know usually quite short but and and quite close just because of the nature of of the facility but um 
I see that I don't want to vilify technology. Like we, we use technology in the outdoors a lot, but, I, but I do see students more and more being anxious about turning their phones off and about not having an earbud in and having that, you know, constant stimulation and distraction from the world around them. And, and so the solo time I think is becoming increasingly valuable because it, it asks students to step back from those distractions and, and to give, you know, that narrative that's inside of them a chance to be heard. Um, and, and, you know, I think about that in my, as a, an adult learner too, um, you know, I spend so much more time on my computer and on my phone these days that, you know, sometimes I forget to take that time to stop and reflect and integrate because we're so busy just, you know, putting information out and taking information in. So yeah, solo time, I think, you know, it's a beautiful time to connect with nature. It's a beautiful time to observe nature. Um, but I think the deepest value is probably in that, that integration and reflection. That's something that I've been trying to incorporate more into my own practice as a person and as a lifelong learner is reflection and I'm, I'm getting great value of it you know from <laughs> a lot of very easy input you know just taking the time to to reflect after an experience or a day and maybe make mm. some notes um though I find the experiences are staying with me more and I'm able to relate them to future experiences more so than if I just moved on immediately to the next thing without that reflection time oh that's beautiful well, and, and one thing, I think it was probably Kim Archibald that shared it with me. He used to say it to students that, you know, you don't have to be 10 miles away from everyone. You have to be visually alone. That was the phrase he would use. You have to be visually alone. And so, you know, I was working with these awesome teachers at Buena Vista, you know, a few times this year. Um, they're teaching kindergarten and pre-K and they take their kindergarten students to have solo time sometimes. And it, what that looks like is is really just taking a few steps away and turning your back because you're going to keep an eye on them, right? You know, <laughs> and <laughs> but it's I think it's such an important thing to remember that you know you don't have to t paddle eight days into the wilderness and take the risk of being on your own in order to access that quiet reflection time. You can just kind of you can just make that choice to turn your back and and turn your gaze to you know, something else for a time and have that intentional focus and then come right back to, you know, the life that you were in before. And um, yeah, I just think it's beautiful to see that in those little kids and, and to see that practice start so early. I could have done with more solo time. Um, <laughs> one of the questions, Sam, that we ask all of our guests is uh, where is your favorite place to visit in Saskatchewan? Yeah. That's so tough. <laughs> I think it's, um, I love Grasslands National Park. Um, I love the the diversity between the East Block and the West Block. And, um, you know, when I was working in outdoor school, I had the privilege of visiting um, once in October and once in May every year for like a decade. And uh, just seeing that place in the different seasons and seeing the Frenchman River like rise and fall and and being there when the gumbo evening primrose blooms for like one day and then it's gone. Like I just have so many of those, you know, beautiful moments in my heart. And so I think I would probably pick that place, but it would be so closely tied with so many others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
the more time you spend outside, the harder that question is, I think. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Another question we ask all our guests is, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a good question, too. I think, um, and I appreciate so much that you sent that question ahead of time, because it was really nice to think about. Um, and I talked to my kids about it. One of them said that she would end all the wars. And the other one said that she would she would make it so that anyone could go where they needed to go when they needed to go there. I was just <laughs> like, you guys are so wise. I should just <laughs> use yours. But <laughs> no, what you know, what I was what I come back to is is I I wish that we could just that all of us could just see the humanity in each other and just access, you know, our, our biophilia, like our love for other living beings. I wish we could just access that immediately in all of our interactions, you know, and, and, and that we could all just treat each other with the deepest kindness. And I would just, I would love to see what the world looked like if we could do that. Beautiful answer. And your kids' <laughs> answers were also wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> That is all the questions we had prepared for you, but is there anything else that you were hoping we would ask you about or that you wanted to talk about? Ooh, um, no, no, I think we're good. You guys had awesome questions. <laughs> great answers. Sam, if there's um, someone out there who wants hold of, of you or through Brightwater, what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Yeah, probably through email. Um, it's you can put it in your show notes or whatever, but it, it's just gun s g u n n s at spsd.sk.ca. Um, and and you know it's my work email, but I'm I'm so happy to to chat with anyone and partner with anyone um, you know that's interested in in working and learning in the outdoors. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, Samantha, thanks for being a guest on the show today. We really appreciate you giving your time. Oh, I so appreciate the invite. It's been really nice chatting. Leah, what's a takeaway or an action piece that you're going to be doing after our talk with Sam? I really appreciated her answer when we asked her about diverse ways of knowing and incorporating Indigenous ways of knowing into the programming at Brightwater. Um, similar to what you said in the interview, uh, I think I often approach it as a thing to add on or another perspective to share. And I really value what she was talking about, about totally taking a step back and thinking about if you're even starting from the right foundation. And I think that that could be revolutionary in some of the program that I lead and that Sasko Doors lead. Mike, are there any actions that you are thinking about taking after our conversation with Sam? Yes, I know I'm going to put more of a focus on including some solo times into what I do with kids outside, because I think so often it's just an afterthought for me where I don't even prep for it. I don't like scope out a space. I don't think about it so much as I'm doing the lesson. It's just something I'll be like, OK, now go off on your own. And kids often have their cell phones. They, you know, I haven't given them a prompt of something to think about or journal about enough. Um, so that's gonna be something I change for sure. And what I do, cause I see the value, I mean, hearing Sam talk about it, you just can hear the value that kids have taken from it. 